much of yourself and that our hearts would be drawn to you. Father, we also pray for our sister church, uh, Diamond Springs Baptist Church and their pastor, Virgil Downman. Father, we pray, Lord, for your glory to be proclaimed there this morning, for the saints there at Diamond Springs to be built up and equipped and unleashed for the sake of the gospel. Father, we also pray for churches around the world, and this morning in particular, we want to pray for those in the Czech Republic there. Lord, we pray, Lord, for churches to grow and to multiply there as, as IMB personnel are laboring to make much of your name. God, we pray, Lord, for many more there in the Czech Republic to come and to believe in Christ and for you to have fruit be born from their gospel proclamation as many believe. God, would you do this work? Lord, how are people to praise you unless you draw them to yourself through the power of the gospel? God, will you do that work? And Father, Lord, this morning we also want to pray for those in our own uh, congregation. Lord, we want to pray for Stan Pikowski, Lord, as uh, on Friday he had several toes removed uh, in surgery. Lord, we pray for him and recovery. We pray for Doris as she cares for him. And God, we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, be with them. Lord, we also pray for various ones in our congregation who are dealing with sickness or dealing with cancer. God, we pray, Lord, that you would bring your healing touch to them, that you would care for them, that they would taste your grace in the midst of it, knowing that you are good and that you have not forsaken them even as they battle sicknesses and this wicked thing called cancer. God, we pray, too, for our own hearts. As we come to the reading of the word and the preaching of the word, God, we pray, Lord, that you would give us open ears to hear, open eyes to see. Help us to behold wondrous things of you and help me, your servant, get out of the way and merely proclaim your word and your truths. Help it to not be about me. Help it not to be a, about us as a congregation of Central City Baptist Church. But help it to be about you and your glory, and all that you have already done for us in Christ. God, will you do this work now? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we think about the Advent season, as we think about the fact that Christ came, Emmanuel, God with us, even as we saw in our Sunday school lessons this morning, why did he come? Why did the humble king come? Was it simply be born unlike any other as a, a born of a virgin mother? Did he come simply to live a life and show us a good example? No. The humble king came to be born of a woman, to live a life without sin. But he came to die as a ransom for many, as we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We can't understand the why of Christmas apart from the cross. Now, if it had been up to my planning, we would be actually in an Advent series. But as I continued to study the Gospel of Mark, I realized halfway through there was many places that needed broken down more. But oh, how fitting and how timely it is. 
for us to conclude, Mark, here in the middle of Advent, as we think about Christmas and the coming of Emmanuel, so that we can think of why Emmanuel came, why God with us dwelt among us, to live and to die for us. So far throughout the Gospel of Mark, we have seen uh, a call to discipleship. Mark is all about making disciples and wanting to, to help show his readers what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He has done this throughout, and it, it wraps up today in a, a Markine fashion, a Markine sandwich. Mark, on, on two sides of the cross, has those crowds. On, before the cross, before Jesus' death, those antagonists that criticized him, that mocked him, that humiliated him. But on the other side of the cross, after Jesus died, we see that of faithful followers who follow Jesus no matter the cost. We've also seen the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Even here in our text this morning, we see one of a Roman citizenship, a centurion, declared Jesus as the Son of God, or at the very least, one who had the favor of the gods, depending on how you take this translation. But in all of this, it's to show us Jesus himself and what it means to follow him. So follow along with me if you have a Bible. Open up to Mark 15, beginning in verse 33, and it will be on the screen behind me. Mark 15 beginning in verse 33, and we're going to read all the way through 16.8. And that's where we're going to end our study in Mark, just while you're turning there and getting situated. Mark's original ending is in 16.8. 16.9 and following was added later. It's actually not in the earliest manuscript, so we're not going to touch that. If you want to know what all is going on there, feel free to come ask me questions later, but we're not going to cover it this morning. Sorry to disappoint any that were looking forward to, to dealing with that text. But what we need to see here is what the cross means, the why of Jesus' coming. Follow along again as I read Mark 15:33 through 16:8. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachnia, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. 
And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. If I have understood this text correctly, in understanding the cross, the resurrection, and the sandwich in between of these followers, the main point of this text, and therefore, if doing this whole preaching thing correctly, the main point of the sermon is this. At the cross, Jesus claims victory for his followers in his death and resurrection. Simple as that. It's at the cross Jesus claims victory for his followers in his death and resurrection. And we're going to unfold this in three points. Point number one, what Jesus does on the cross. Point number two, what the resurrection of Jesus means. And point number three, what it means to follow Jesus. Let's look at point number one, what Jesus wins at the cross. Here at the cross, we see one of the most complex aspects of our Christian faith. We see the fact of that of a merciful God and one who will not clear the guilty meet in the cross. Mark Dever helps us in this in his book, uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. He writes, Jesus solves the riddle of Exodus 34. He shows how God can forgive our wickedness while at the same time punish the guilty. What he's saying here is pulling from Exodus 34, 6 through 7, which reads, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. How, how, God, can you be merciful and gracious and at the same time not clear the guilty? How then do you clear us of our sin if you don't forgive the inequity to the third and the fourth generation? The answer is the cross, the cross of Christ, where Jesus becomes sin for us. He becomes that sin so that we can be forgiven. Jesus becomes forsaken so that we can be welcomed. Jesus and the cross is the answer here. 
But we must first remember why we need the cross. Too many of us try and jump straight to Jesus when we're doing evangelism. Too many of us want to jump straight to, to Jesus in the thinking of, of talking about our faith. But we fail to understand. We fail to back up a minute and remember why we need Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we don't need Jesus just to give us a little help. We need Jesus because we have sinned against our creator. God created us as man in his image. You and me, he created in his perfect image. In his goodness, he created us. But when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when they took of that forbidden fruit, sin entered the world. And it's reigned through each and every one of us. All you need to do is look at the little children, even in our midst. There's sinfulness that they are born with. You don't teach them to disobey mom and dad. They just do it. Brothers and sisters, no matter how much you hold and know the law, you are going to fail and break in it. You hear the law and our hearts want to do the very opposite. The, the heart says, do not uh, desire, do not covet what your neighbor has. And what do we do? We covet. Our hearts are sinful. We need desperate help. And because of just one sin, we fall short of the glory of God. We're left in being condemned before a holy God. When we jump straight to Jesus, we miss why we need Jesus in failing to see the Creator. But we also fail to remember, again, our own sinfulness. And the fact that nothing can restore us to a holy God while we remain in sin. So how does God show mercy to sinners? How does he show mercy to those of us here, right here in this room, who have sinned against him? By Jesus, his own son, coming as Emmanuel to dwell with us, to be born, to die. Look with me there in verse 34. Here, here on the cross it says, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachnia, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does God show mercy and compassion to sinners? How does he not clear the guilty? By Jesus being forsaken in our place. Jesus was truly isolated from the Father so that we would not. He felt that isolation. And on the crosses, as God's wrath is being poured out against him, Jesus feels this agony. And the only words that he can figure out or come up with to describe what he's feeling is that of Psalm 22.1. This, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a direct quote of Psalm 22, verse 1. And in that psalm, there, there's various allusions to the whole of the scene here on Calvary at Golgotha. We see the fact that they casted lots for his clothes. And, and we find that in Psalm 22. We see the fact of, of they, the psalmist was still trusting in the Lord, even in the midst of actually being forsaken. And ultimately, Christ is. But Jesus was truly forsaken for our sake. 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes on to say, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus became that sin. He became guilty so that we could be made innocent. He was declared the one who should be condemned by the Father under that judgment. This all seems academic, but but we need to understand this in the sense because we need to understand the links that Jesus went to in order to rescue us. Why do you think our, our love is often cold? Because we have a low view of the Savior. We have a high view of ourselves and a low view of sin. When we understand the depth of sin, when we understand the depth that Jesus went to in order to purchase us from that sin, what a Savior. Come adore the humble King who came to save me and sinners like me. To restore us to Himself. Now before I get ahead, some here, as you read in the text there, uh, beginning in verse 35, and bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And, uh, then they ran, took uh, wine to him and offered it. And then others says, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come there at the end of verse 36. What in the world has this to do in, with what we're looking at? Well, in our English, Elijah and God don't sound very similar, do they? They're, they're very different. But here's the irony. In, in the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, the language Hebrew and Aramaic is what Jesus would have spoken. No, Jesus didn't come speaking King James English, folks. He, he came speaking in Hebrew and Aramaic. These two words are very similar. Elijah sounds like this. Elijah. Elijah. But God, Elohim, Elohim. You see the similarity here. So as Jesus speaks this, Eloi, Eloi, Sabachnia, as it does some funky, I won't go into the whole grammatical aspects. It, it takes on some forms and endings that we don't typically see in English. English, honestly, folks, is the weirdest of languages. It doesn't have... Singular and plural endings. It doesn't have masculine and feminine endings like every other language. We actually have the strangest of languages. Just FYI. But it, as it takes these, they sound very similar. So the people there mistakenly think he is calling for Elijah. But he is not calling for Elijah. One, the fact that this is Psalm 22, 1 being quoted is evidence and proof that he's not doing that. The second is the fact that Mark helps us in his translation, even as he writes this in the Greek. He says, my God, my God is what it means. Not Elijah. You fools, open your deaf ears and hear what he's saying, man. He's calling for God. He's calling for his God. The one he continues to trust, even as he feels that forsakenness. That, that double emphasis, that double meaning of my God, my God shows certainty and trust. So, so he takes this possessive language of my God. You're not some foreign God who I'm being forsaken. You are my God who I'm being forsaken. And yet, my God is who I continue and certainly and surely put my trust in and hope. Even in the midst of this forsaken, I'm going to keep trusting in you. But make no mistake, Jesus, while he trusted the Father, while he willingly continued to endure there on the cross, he was abandoned by the Father. 
Because sin separates us from God. We, in our sinful nature, were separated from God. So the only way for God to, to fix this turmoil, this conflict between showing his compassion, his mercy, and not clearing the guilty was Jesus to stand in the gap to become our substitute. Or as J.R. Packer puts it, our penal substitute. Packer writes this, The notion which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined, and so won us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. That's too good. I'm going to repeat this slowly. The notion which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined and so won us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. In the cross, the conflict, the, the turmoil between the two is put to rest in Jesus because he's the one who becomes the guilty so that we can be shown mercy and grace. It is he who endures the darkest hour of God's full wrath being poured out on him. Look, look back at verse 33 here, how it describes the darkness here. It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, if you have an NIV or, or CSB, you're already helped in how it translates it. It, it says it, it's noon or, or 12 p.m. And, and 3 p.m. here are the hours being described. The, the Hebrew world, the, the ancient world goes by the hour of the sun rising. So here at noon, between noon and three, no matter what time of year it is, it, it could be winter like it is now, or it could be uh, the dead of, of summer, we see the sun should have been at some of its highest points during this hour, during these times. That's when the sun is at its highest, and yet darkness covers. Not that of, of thunderclouds and storm darkness that we see coming in with tornadoes and, and different severe storms. A sudden, unexplainable darkness covers the whole land. Most likely this just covering around Jerusalem, probably not that of the whole world. But, but the whole land is covered in this darkness. Why? Well, we can't understand this without understanding what happened when Jesus was baptized. When Jesus began his ministry, the heavens split open as the dove descended on Christ, anointing him with the Holy Spirit. Now compare that to the end of his life, the end of his ministry, when he was suffering. Darkness here covers the whole of the earth. This is the darkest hour because sin is being met. Don't believe me? Maybe Amos 8 9 will help us. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. The day of the Lord has come. But notice again the one it's come on. 
It's not come on Israel who sinned. It's not come on the Romans who were wicked. It's not come on the rest of the pagan nations. It's coming on Jesus, the beloved Son of God, so that He can take our place, so that we can escape the day of the Lord, that dark and dreaded day in which God's judgment against all sin would be poured out. This is the link that Jesus has gone to on the cross. He went there to purchase us. And what this means, folks, is this. If this is the link that Jesus went to in order to save us, how much more is he going to go to to keep us? Christian means we're no longer declared guilty. By our faith in Christ, we can be certainty. There is no guilt that remains. Jesus drank it all. There is nothing we can do to derail his love. It has been poured out for us on the cross. We have certainty and surety because of what he endured on the cross. We have life because he gave his own for us. The shepherd laid down his life for us. We have security and comfort and joy as he felt the isolation and the abandonment of that forsaken time. Oh, Christian, behold the king of glory. But that's not all that's happened. As Jesus endured the cross, it goes on to say in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This is, is looking at, at the idea of what we see in Luke, John's gospel. In John 19.30 it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So it's It's ended. He's finished it all. He's fulfilled the law of the prophets. He is, is endured as the perfect sacrifice without sin. He's finished his mission, his task. It is done. And Jesus gives up his life. But look what it adds there in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Mark read earlier in the service uh, for us from Exodus 34. Uh, or 26, sorry. Uh, and in that passage, we see this idea of the curtain being put up in the temple. As the temple was being built, a massive curtain was, was given to separate the most holy of holies. So imagine this pulpit. There, there's a massive curtain separating the holy of the holies. Uh, putting it in our language understanding, the, the high priest, or in our terms, the pastor, would be the only one to enter. And only once a year. To approach God in order to offer a sacrifice, in order to be near to him in this holy of holy places. This curtain would have separated. It would have remained closed. This is what uh, that uh, of Aaron's sons entered wrongly and offered unauthorized fire and died from. This is the kind of understanding that's going on in this holy of holies place. But again, turn our eyes back to 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. The curtain 
is torn. It is no more. This isn't talking about the literal curtains in the temple. This is talking about the curtain that separates us to God. Access to God. In Jesus' death on the cross, He wins us access to the Father. Because the Father has accepted the sacrifice of the perfect Son for all eternity. Giving us access to a holy God. Brothers and sisters, this is why we can enter into the holy places. This is why we can be certain that that God has showed his mercy and his grace to us in the fact that we are no longer declared guilty because we have access to him because of what the Son did on the cross. Just the last few weeks, we've been going through gentle and lowly in our Sunday night Bible study. If you still have not received a book, a copy of Gentle and Lowly, please come see me. I would love to put that resource in your hand. But in in part of it, Dane uh, writes, he says, uh, The intercession of Christ is his heart connecting our heart to the Father's heart. But then he applies this. He says, We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. And all of this is because we have Jesus, who is before the Father, interceding for us with a curtain torn in two. We have access through Jesus. He's broken that curtain. And he's there pleading our case and interceding for us even now. He also goes on, Dane goes on to write in in the next chapter, he says, uh, Our sins feel far more sinful after we have become believers than before. And it's not only our felt perception of our sinfulness. We do indeed continue to sin after becoming believers. Sometimes we sin big sins, and that's what Christ's advocacy is for. It's God's way of encouraging us not to throw in the towel. Yes, we fail Christ as his disciples, but his advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sins. His advocacy speaks louder than our failures. All is taken care of. If the curtain had not been torn... Had Jesus not died and been forsaken, we could not have that certainty. But because it does, we have that security. We have that comfort. Even when we continue to struggle with sin, even when we have that besetting sin that we can't seem to shake, we go to the Savior because he's already suffered and died in our place. And we put our trust in him, knowing for certainty we have Life eternal. This is what is won for us at the cross. This is the victory won. And this is why Jesus came. He came to die to give his life as a ransom for many. But Jesus didn't remain dead. And that's where we shift briefly in the second point. What the resurrection of Jesus means. Yes, Jesus died. He was truly buried A massive stone was rolled in front of the tomb so that people couldn't just come up and and one of us sitting here take Jesus' body and hide it to deceive others. There would have had to been a massive army to remove that stone. Two witnesses even see it showing validation this has happened. But notice what it says. Verse 47 of chapter 15. Mary Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. But then it goes on. When the Sabbath was passed there in 16.1, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And then very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone 
for us from the entrance of the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He surely died. He was surely buried. But he arose. Jesus arose, not only defeating sin, but defeating death. Giving hope to all who would place their hope and faith in him. Brothers and sisters, there is no hope of eternal life apart from Jesus' resurrection. The very fact that he arose is astonishing. Look at verse 8, it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The very fact that Jesus arose from the grave should astonish every one of us, whether we're hearing this for the first time or we're hearing it for the millionth time. The fact that Jesus is alive is not some minor thing. The fact that he's alive means death could not even hold him. The grave could not keep him. And how much more for us who are in Christ will too have that hope of resurrected life in which we will be raised from the dead, given new bodies. In our faith, It's not just the fact that we have hope to be in heaven someday. Heaven is not the goal. God is. The fact that we are promised this resurrected hope in Jesus means that we will rise and we will get to be in the new Jerusalem, the new holy city with Almighty God and the one who died for us. That we will gather around the throne as we see in Revelation and sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. Was and is and is to come. This is the hope we have in the resurrection of Christ. It's that guarantee. Even in the song we sang this morning, open the service with joy to the world. The the third standard goes, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. For for as the curse is found, for as the curse is found, for as far as the curse is found. And this good news is reigning because Jesus defeated sin and death. This is what is won for us in Christ. He's defeated it all. But what now? What do we do with that? That's where we turn quickly again in our third and final point this morning. What it means to follow Jesus. Again, we see a Marquine sandwich. That's how Mark closes his gospel. All throughout Mark, there's been these sandwiches with a story on one side, another story on another, and something smacked right between it. And the story in between pulls it together. Um, Prior to Jesus' death, prior to his, his burial, there were those who rejected him, who mocked him. But on the other side, we're we're introduced to to women who follow Jesus. That's on the other side, immediately after his death. Then we're introduced to to one uh, named Joseph of Arimathea, and then we're introduced specifically to two more women again. 
These following Jesus. Mark is all about what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to be his disciple and a student of his. Which we're all in Christ called to be. But notice this. It says there in verse 41. When he was in Galilee. Or uh, backing up to verse 40. Sorry. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. What does it mean to follow? Notice it only names two of these women, two Marys and other women. Part of following Jesus is not about being grand in ourselves. It's not even about having our names known and remembered. It's about serving Him and ministering to Him and His cause and continuing to faithfully follow even when others abandoned. Brothers and sisters, if you're looking to faithfully serve Jesus, some of the greatest servants for the sake of Christ are the unknown. They're the ones whose names are not written in books. They're not the ones who, who we all know. We all know the name Lottie Moon, but I promise you there are thousands more Lottie Moons than we will ever recall in this life. I recall one sister who gave up everything. She, she's a girl from Georgia. She uh, went to school with me in, in Louisville, Kentucky. She wanted to serve the local church so faithfully. But as she came to Southern, as she came to Louisville and, and was part of the, of the church I ended up joining, she fell in love with a couple who ended up deciding they were going overseas. And because she loved the local church, she loved this dear family, she gave up every pursuit she had had of returning home to Georgia and ministering in the local church to go and serve in a foreign nation in the Middle East. A single lady went to go and serve this dear family who has ministered faithfully because of her assistance and is having some of the biggest gospel impact in the Middle East. Currently in that location right now, the, the sheikh of the region, the king, has given land for a church to be built there and a place in where Christians are coming not only from Afghanistan, they're coming from Pakistan and India. They're coming from all of these places, from Saudi Arabia, and training in this location. But this sister was part of that mission, and her name will not be remembered by most. But she served faithfully. Brothers and sisters, if we want to be great in the kingdom, let us be servant of all. Let us not care if our names are recorded, just like these other women who ministered to Jesus. Let us faithfully serve if we're not willing to serve in the unknown ways, forget about the idea of making something or having your name known. Serve in the unknown ways. Or as my former pastor challenged a group of seminary men, he said, how many of you want to preach? Hands shot up in the air. How many of you are serving in the nursery right now? A minor few hands eased up. It's not about what position or role we have. It's about us faithfully serving Him because of who He is and His glory. 
But on to, to Joseph and Arimathea. He goes, he's, it says here in, in verse 43, a respected member of the council who was as himself looking for the kingdom of God. He was one of the Sanhedrin council who had just condemned Jesus to death. He was searching for the kingdom of God. And he decides, you know what? I, I think this was the son. At the very least, I think he's worthy of a respectable burial. Most, when crucified, were thrown in a ditch. The bodies were just tossed. Jesus is asked to have his body buried by this Joseph. He goes to Pilate in asking for this, taking boldness in asking for such a request, breaking protocol. But notice what it, it meant for him to follow Jesus. It was a means of boldness. It was also a means of cost because he gave the tomb in which Jesus was put and buried. So to follow Jesus is a means that we're going to have to count the cost. That it might cost us something. It might cost us comfort. It might cost us popularity. It might cost us even our lives. To follow Jesus, it means to count the cost and to take up our own cross and follow him. It means... That we need to be bold too, to not be ashamed to declare the name of Christ. And I don't mean by posting another Facebook meme uh, of Jesus is actually alive and well. That's good and fine, brothers and sisters, but that's not the means of what it means to be bold. How many of us are willing to go and share across the street personally, face to face and say, I believe Jesus is alive and well. I believe that. He is the only way, unless, friend, you repent of sin and trust in Him, you're going to perish. That's the kind of boldness we need. Not the sharing of everything that comes across our Facebook or, or other social media accounts. We need people bold to declare Jesus, to declare the kingdom of God, that we actually believe in it face to face. But then there's the other two. There's the two ladies who go and care to anoint Jesus. They much like uh, Joseph here, count the cost. They want to go and anoint the king of glory. They recognize who he is. They figure he is worth anointing in this way as he's dead. But they stumble. They do stumble. They stumble because instead of going and telling others, they're struck by fear. They struggle in this moment, and yet they are dearly beloved. They are recorded in the story. For look at verse 7. It says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Remember Peter, the night that Jesus died, denied Jesus three times. He forsook Jesus when he said, No, I will certainly not. And yet it's Peter they're told to go and tell. That he is alive and he's coming to meet them. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? To hold on. To find comfort in him. Because again, Christian, we're going to struggle. We're going to fail. We have a weary world. And they need to know how they can rejoice. We rejoice not in anything of ourselves, but in Christ and Christ alone. By going to Him and resting in Him. Christian, continue to rest in what Jesus has won on the cross. And friend, if you're here for the first time, 
You need to desperately consider your own need in Jesus. Believe in him. Turn from your sins today so that you too can have that hope of eternal life in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. God, we pray Lord, that you would be exalted and glorified. God, we pray, Lord, that we would remember what all that you have won for us on the cross and that we would boldly take up our own crosses and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.